0: Wednesday, May 2nd. This is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers, for Motley Fool Pro, Jeff Fisher, and for Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, happy hump day. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> it's Wednesday. Come on, yeah, you is. haven't heard of Wednesday referred to as Hump Day? Oh, he just caught me off guard. Get that. your yeah. mind yeah, out I'm of the gutter. All right, we've got earnings from Mastercard and Papa John's. We will have a preview of this weekend's Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting with our own Joe Maker, who will be attending. Um, but we have to start once again. We got to start with Chesapeake Energy. Um, yesterday, if you recall from yesterday's episode, we. Talked about how uh, Aubrey McClendon, the CEO, is stepping down as chairman, and he's going to be ending his uh, uh, the Founder Well participation program about 18 months early. And I mentioned that Peter Miller, who is the lead independent director on the board of directors at Chesapeake, he's also the CEO of National Oil Well, Varco, had this to say, this should send a positive signal to the market and improve shareholder value. And you know what? It did for about eight hours yesterday. Uh, Charlie, that was yesterday. Today, Reuters is reporting that Aubrey McClendon ran a $200 million hedge fund that <laughs> traded the same commodities that Chesapeake Energy produces. This is a
1: secret hedge fund.
0: What's wrong with that? What the
1: – Yeah. If you thought the last shoe had dropped on the Chesapeake story, you were proven grossly wrong this morning with this Reuters story. Apparently it's like
2: they're, a giant muddy boot. Right. Yeah. What's
1: and,
3: next? He's raising Bengal tigers in yeah. his backyard.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, and, and apparently they're probably
0: just producing more shoes for him to drop. Yeah. I mean, this, this appears to fall into the category of one of our favorite words, sleagle. Sleagle. appears <laughs> to be slimy, but it appears to be legal, it Joe. It, it but he had me. good returns.
3: 20-some percent Jeff, per year or yeah. something like that? It, it, 2004 to 2008? No, what was it? This it's was, a,
0: Yeah, this was a, this is a secret hedge fund that he ran from 2004 to 2008. It closed down. Joe, I guess the timing syncs up about with the financial crisis when that hit well, in Charlie and
2: I were talking about this earlier. The timing roughly syncs up about the time that McClendon got wiped out himself because he had levered up and bought Chesapeake stock, which got crushed during the financial crisis. And the company went in and bailed him out, uh, which was totally ridiculous and a complete insult to shareholders. Hearing about this now, it, it's so unbelievable that it happened. And on top of everything else, and you got to think with the chairman news that just came out that these guys knew the story was coming and they were like, look, we got to get out in front of this a little bit. And so they went in and made that move.
0: I don't know, though. Do you think? I mean, if this was, and and it's a great, you know, for for as much fun uh, as we make of the financial media from time to time, as we do, um, all credit to these three reporters at Reuters because this is a yeah. a massive amount of research went into this story, um, and one of the things that they get at is just how secret this fund was. So the notion, so you know, while we've made fun and rightly so of Chesapeake's board of directors in the past, it's entirely possible that they didn't know anything about this. I mean, you know, Pete Miller coming out with a quote, essentially saying yesterday, look, he's stepping down as chairman, you know, this this is behind us.
2: He might have been blindsided by this, too. You know, whether this was illegal is one question, and that's something that someone else is probably working on figuring out right now. But it's absolutely unethical. This is, we were talking earlier, similar to Pete Rose betting on baseball only instead of betting on the team, you're actually the umpire who's calling the shots in the game. And the reason this is different than him just running or some like small CEO running a side fund is that Chesapeake is one of the biggest producers of oil and gas in the U.S. And because of that, McClendon himself has the thumb on the button that can increase or decrease supply, which affects prices. So when they were making moves on increasing production or cutting back, that affects prices. And so there was a lot of if not illegal, very shady, unethical dealing.
3: Yeah, and their press release today said that they did not use any of their information that they garner through Chesapeake to manage his hedge fund. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah, I <laughs> mean you can't you can't split those two things in half. You
3: can't. And it's, it's, where is his head at that he does this? Is the question now? There, there's no question he needs to get o- get off Chesapeake and just be done with it because he feels he's above the law. Apparently, he's not focused on the business and. You have to question why he would do this at all. two hundred million dollars for him was relatively not that giant. Why is he doing this?
2: Well, people do stupid things with some small amounts of money. I mean, David Sokol was next in line to run Berkshire Hathaway, and he mm. you know threw it all away over a few dozen thousand in gains on an insider transaction self sabotage
0: yeah. Charlie, what do you think? Does McClendon survive this? I mean, I could see him. And the board, maybe even backing him, if he were to come out and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve through, you know, the the next two years or something like that, and you know, I'm not running this fund anymore, and I'm no longer the chairman, and
2: and you bought back the maps, right? <laughs> exactly, he part bought- of the bailout. He sold his antique map collection to Chesapeake to display in the lobby. Yeah, anyone who doesn't know that,
1: with all that's gone over the last four years uh, here, I think this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Chesapeake stock despite being the second-largest gas producer in the country, has underperformed almost all of its peer group, Uh, and the reason is, you know, not because of the assets they have, but because of all this uh, black cloud hanging over, and I think uh, the board of directors has to do one of two things. They either need to replace McClendon uh, with a seasoned industry executive who is beyond reproach, or put the company up for sale entirely. I think those are the two options. Uh, Yeah, speaking
0: of shares, I should mention shares of Chesapeake, down about 12% this this morning, uh, uh, stock trading around a three-year low. Even cheaper, uh,
3: Joe. <laughs> even, even cheaper. You're <laughs> thinking about it. I know you're thinking about it.
0: I am. Um, Joe, what do you think? To Charlie's point, is, is the value in this company um, – is it now in the territory where, in some ways, the greatest value for this company is as a takeout candidate for someone else?
2: Yeah, it could be. And there are a couple potential candidates. One is Total, that recently the French oil giant that recently saddled up with them in a joint venture, uh, Utica Shale. Uh, they've already got a relationship. They've got some sense of what Chesapeake's about. And it's a $100 billion company. Total is. And right now, Chesapeake Energy's market cap's around like $11 billion. Well The problem is they also have a lot of debt. So whoever takes these guys on is going to have to deal with that. Chesapeake also has a lot of liabilities that don't show up on the balance sheet because of these forward purchase deals where they've done all these joint ventures. Their balance sheet, and this is part of the reason I sold the stock a year ago, was unbelievably convoluted. It's extremely difficult to figure out what they own, the present value of their assets. So it's really nasty, but you might have someone like a Total or Royal Dutch Shell that has a lot of cash, deep pockets, patience, and expertise would be willing to swallow it up and take on that risk and unwind unwind all these wacky trades and positions over time.
0: Okay. That's it for today on Chesapeake Energy. But who knows? <laughs> 24 hours from now, we could be you know, talking about yet another shoe that has fallen. Uh, MasterCard's quarterly profits up 20 per, uh, 21%. Earnings came in higher than expected. So, Jeff Fisher, I have to ask, why is the stock down this morning? It was down a little bit this morning, Chris. And now, as we tape, it's
3: it's coming back to near even. And what happened was a Wall Street reaction that we see far too frequently. People were concerned that the rebates and incentives that MasterCard was giving out to issuers and merchants to, to make them use MasterCard more had gone up a, as a percentage of revenue. It's running around 24 25% on their expense line. And for years, well, since 2006 when they came public, Wall Street's been really focused on how many rebates and incentives you have to give out to drive your volume growth. Uh, now you get into the conference call, which just happened, and they actually said it was not the cost did not go up. Their volumes went up, and so the rebates and incentives went up in proportion to that. There was no absolute growth, and so the shares are recovering as of right now.
0: Uh, Joe Visa, uh, com- obvious competitor to Mastercard. That's a inside value recommendation. Yep. Um, they're reporting tonight. Is that right? Yeah. How are you feeling?
2: I feel pretty good. I think you're going to see very similar results out of Visa from what MasterCard did. Probably lower numbers, because MasterCard's a smaller company and a little more of a growth story. They're both phenomenal businesses that I think are great in long-term holdings.
3: Totally agree. They're both competing against cash, not so much each other. Yeah. But to Joe's point, Visa does still have about twice as many cards out there as MasterCard. So MasterCard, they both have room to grow, but MasterCard arguably has even more room to grow. And MasterCard is taking more debit card market share in the US. Visa used to dominate. And MasterCard has nearly doubled its presence there in the last couple of years, last year, thanks to the Durban Amendment. So MasterCard, they expect to grow 20% annualized EPS the next couple of years. Visa, though, is right up there with them, growing strongly as well.
0: Now, yeah. you say that they're competing against cash, but long term, I mean, when you hear stories like the, the the GSA coming out and recommending eliminating the dollar bill and that sort of thing, like long term, and when I say long term, I'm I'm talking maybe twenty, thirty years out. Mm-hmm. Isn't it much more likely that we're going the route of Visa and Mastercard or PayPal or or that sort of thing than than cash?
3: I think so, definitely, and that's why they're they're slowly taking market share away from cash, which holds eighty five percent of world market share for transactions. So what what they have to keep an eye on are other forms of electronic commerce that could supplant Visa or MasterCard. And they both have their, their finger on the pulse of that. Um, MasterCard rolled out PayPass six years ago or so, mm-hmm. maybe longer, which is where you just use your mobile phone or your uh, keychain and pay that way, swipe and pay. So they have their finger on the pulse of what's happening. But yeah, Chris, th- that's exactly our point. It, it, cash is going to go the way of dinosaurs
0: you know the big loser in all this is is kids losing their teeth 25 years from now because what you're going to wake up and under your pillow there's going to be like oh look it's a little dollar
2: 50 debit card uh, They'll yeah. just get an email from where their parents paypal them some cash yeah. little prepaid card that's, well
0: the, the other advantage that's, that's are, not quite the same magic
2: <laughs> i'm setting up
1: the tooth fairy account on twitter right now well my son asked for chocolate chip cookies when he lost his tooth so that's kind of ironic
0: there you go that's a that's a nice <laughs> recipe for losing even more teeth uh Shares of Papa John's up more than 16% this morning. Uh, Jeff, this is uh, another one of uh, your recommendations. Um, Better earnings, better pizza stock, I guess.
3: Exactly. Pizza is hot. Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's are all- Terrible. (laughs) Terrible. I wondered
0: if I could slip that one through. no.
3: No, of course not. Why did did I even try? End of story. Things look good, Chris. Everything's good in pizza land. (laughs) No, so uh, Papa John's has about 4,000 locations around the world. Domino's has about 10,000. What you're just seeing here is Papa John's continue to execute, execute on their growth strategy. Most of their stores are still in North America, yet mm-hmm. their name is Papa John's International. They're really expanding in Europe, and they're seeing really strong sa- same-store sales growth over in Europe and, and healthy in the U.S. too. So it's, it's good execution, reasonably priced stock. It's up about Eighty six percent in the last two years for Pro, where we where we bought it, and uh, it's just been a quiet performer.
0: Now we, we were talking before the taping. You you said something to the effect of that the pizza industry is kind of volatile. I, I, I mm-hmm. obviously don't study the pizza industry, but it seems to me that it, it would be. I don't know. Relatively predictable, and and we had Domino's reporting earnings earlier in the week. They kind of missed on their earnings. What what yeah, exactly. what makes the pizza industry volatile?
3: Mainly pricing wars, and it's largely promotion driven. So unless like Super Bowl is a great time for for pizza, uh, baseball season not so much. Because every day is a great <laughs> day for <laughs> pizza. I, like be honest. Honest. I would
0: argue every day is a great day. <laughs> All right, for pizza. Well, there
3: you go. Yeah, it's lumpy, but in the long run, it, it's
0: it's growing smoothly. Um, final question, and and this. You know, take this not just for Papa John's, but for you know whether it's Pizza Hut or Domino's or just sort of the big players. Um, you look at uh, the pizza industry in general, and the the group with the largest market share in the United States is actually independent shops. It's the local shops, and we were talking before the taping. Pizza is kind of a regional thing. You're a Chicago guy, so mm-hmm. I'm assuming you're more of a deep dish kind of person. I used to be. And then, I evolved when I moved ooh, out to, oh, to D.C. You but can't, now you can't go back to Chicago. Don't uh, let I anyone would be in Chicago. Belted by tomatoes yeah. Um, Unos
3: And Dewey's in Chicago. Uh, they're still. The best.
0: But how, like it, it would seem to me that unlike say a coffee business, um, that a pizza business has a lower ceiling in terms of its growth, just because there's always going to be those local chains or just you know one-off local shops that are going to be popular.
3: I think. And To one extent, that's true. If they're popular, they'll do well, but many that are on the fringes may get squeezed out because your margins are low in the pizza business, and it's almost like MasterCard and Visa going after cash. Papa John's and Domino's are
1: going after all these little kind of marginal mom-and-pop shops that can't compete on price. The ones that compete here are the ones that give you, like, a fancier pizza and have a kick-ass beer selection. I'm sorry. I can't say that, but yeah. Sure you can. Yeah. You can believe that. You can say beer selection. Beer That's selection. Little- um, uh, sorry, I get excited. <laughs> um, uh, Joe
0: Mager, you're heading out this weekend uh, to the annual meeting at Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Um, what are you expecting? What are you, what are you um, hoping to glean from you know your trip besides just loading up on seas Candy?
2: Sure. So the Berkshire (laughs) meeting is attended by tens of thousands of people from across the world. Uh, It's an awesome event. And this year, I would say, is especially interesting given the backdrop of questions around Buffett's health. Uh, Obviously, it's not a funny topic, but it's a serious question and issue if you're a Berkshire investor. Uh, Questions about why the stock is underperformed. And I think Buffett and Munger are going to get pelted with some really tough questions that are fair uh, from the people hosting. So, Andrew Ross, Sorkin, Becky Quick, and Carol Loomis were all asking questions, Mm -hmm. plus a few other analysts. You know, it's going to be a long day for them. Personally, I love the weekend. Uh, It's a great event. It's great to see these guys get out there and answering questions. It's a real intellectual marathon, and uh, we'll be covering it. We're sending a whole team of people because there is a lot to see, and there are also conferences before and after, and we're going to be tweeting, throwing up photos, videos, you name it.
0: Uh, we have a, a free microsite at berkshire.fool.com. That's berkshire.fool.com if you want to follow any of the action over the weekend. If you got to ask a question either of Buffett or Munger, what would you ask?
2: Oh, I did get to ask him a question a couple years ago at a small PR event. I asked him about hurdle rates. And for- Hurdle rates? Yeah. So for his investments, a couple years ago, the big theme was that Berkshire was moving towards more capital intensive, lower return businesses. And that was a real shift in the way Buffett had thought and run the business for a long time. So I asked him about what sort of return profile he's looking for.
0: And did he just dismiss I you? I refuse at-
2: to tell. <laughs> I was hoping he would just dismiss you as, a, as an underling. No, I mean, he just came back with, he. I think he used to roll with something around 15%. And there are a lot of different points where he's you know, pointed to that or hinted at that, but over time, he's essentially changed it, and he's just now looking for the best opportunity at any given point in time on a risk-adjusted basis.
0: Okay. Berkshire.fool.com. Check out the site, and I'm just going to go ahead and promise on behalf of the entire team going out there, one of the members of the team, I'm not promising it's Joe, but one of the members of the team will ingest an entire box of peanut brittle, that'll be on video. Berkshire.fool.com. Is it timed? Is it a race? How quickly you can... We'll just go ahead and say it's Mike Olson. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's not in the room. Uh, Finally, not really an investing story, but uh, one that caught our eye. An Arkansas woman who cashed in a $1 million lottery ticket may have to give the winnings To the woman who threw away the ticket after she bought it, Sharon Jones claimed the prize money after she got the ticket out of a trash can of discarded lottery tickets at a convenience store. A county judge has ruled that while Sharon Duncan threw away the winning lottery ticket, she did not abandon her right to claim the one million dollars. Come on. What yeah, th- I disagree. I mean, I'm, none of us are lawyers, but wait a minute. We've she- seen Law and Order. <laughs> oh, yeah. We watch a lot, a lot of Matlock. I mean, she threw away the ticket, but she didn't abandon her right to I'm claim thinking
3: she, she promised the judge half. If he rules in her favor.
0: <laughs> well, and that, you know, I mean, if you're Sharon Duncan and you threw away the ticket and now this other woman has found it, I mean, d- at, the, at a minimum, don't you give her a finder's fee? Don't you, Charlie, don't you at cut least her in? 10%.
3: Into, I was going to say 10, and, 15%. And, 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 yeah. And seriously, the problem is they cannot prove that Ms. Duncan is the one who actually bought the ticket originally. There's no record of it. So what happened, I guess, people check their tickets in the this, in this store and throw them all away. So this, there's this trash can full of thrown away tickets. Yep. This woman, I guess somewhat periodically would go through the tickets and see if any were good. She found one that paid out. How do you prove that it, uh, who originally bought it? You, you know, can't... I I actually bought that ticket. <laughs> there you go, Joe. I mean, you're believable. Yeah, you're on a podcast.
0: We may, <laughs> we may. You know what? We may not be here tomorrow. We may have to go down to Arkansas with a couple of lawyers and see if we can sort what this a out.
3: Crazy story.
0: Jeff Fisher, Charlie Travers, Joe Mager, guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Flory. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.